remove that source. Hi, it says we are live. There's the notifications. We're live. We're here. We're um, yes. Hello. Hi. Hello, Internet. We are here. And we're going to stay here. We're going to stay here. Um, yes. And not next just two hours. Not just disappear and stuff. Well, that's it. We're Thanks for joining us. We're going to do a proper show tonight and everything, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about this. We, we kind of geeked out a little bit. Um, last week during the human factors hangout um, yes about I, I, got, I got told by a couple of friends who were who were listening they just to, decided not to chat, chat which i berated them for but um apparently I, I enjoyed myself far too much apparently oh really you you can enjoy yourself too much when it comes to i i i, I don't know what they were talking about personally but um uh, but apparently so you were uh, so it was it was so enjoyable to you um, it, well, it was fun. I, I like making stuff up, but it, but it was all. It's it's when you sort of let your um, let your imagination go, but it's still grounded in a sense of um, normality. Um, you know, so we weren't completely making stuff up. We were evaluating each other's ideas, and I would mess with yours, um, and that, and it was all good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's all good. Okay. Um, okay. So this is not great. Um, what is what is this? Why is this happening? What, what, what's happening? So I am. Um, we have changed here on the Human Factors Cast side of things. We have. Um, let's say we've we've changed um, some things, and one of those things is um, the way. <laughs> In which um, we uh, sorry, I got bouncy legs. So if you hear my voice like modulating, that's what's going on. Um, sorry, the, one of the things that we've managed to change behind the scenes is where we upload our podcast. Actually, so if you're on SoundCloud, we are. Uh, I guess you wouldn't hear this if you're on SoundCloud because we're no longer publishing oh, there. So, uh, yeah, we've changed where just because there's a lot of reasons behind the scenes why we want to do this. Uh, it offers us better metrics. It allows us better control over our podcast itself. We started the show in 2016. We were looking for the cheapest option. And so SoundCloud was it. And now we're willing to or I guess able to switch over to something that a little bit more powerful, a little bit more um, a little bit better for our podcast growth, honestly. Uh, and so what we're looking at now is a new service and um, it no longer takes the same. Um, what is the word I am looking for? The same um, scale of images that we usually use to populate the show. Uh, yes. So what that looks like behind the scenes here is um, we very much uh, need a larger, larger image. And when I'm trying to um, actually populate with this larger image, giving me some issues. So uh, with that being said, I don't know why this is happening, though, because um, I've specified it to the number of pixels that we need, and it is not going. Um, odd. Anyway. It's, it's, quite, it's quite nice for me at this side, given that I've spent a part of my day-to-day um, editing and hacking together the stuff for, for my next episode going out. It's quite nice seeing being able to sit here and just go, ah, while you run around like the, yes. the verbal duck when I, looking serene on the surface, but underneath everything else is, is uh, 
Now, Barry, um, I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if you saw this. Um, we have now a better way to manage things. It's kind of my one more thing. But it, did you see how many steps were attached to that ticket uh, for yes. one episode of development? It's a 50-step process. I, d- I did see that. And I part of me sort of thinks that you need we need to do a lot more automation or something. Um, yeah. But also, I, I was looking through it going, it took me ages actually to find because because there were so many steps. It took me ages to to see the attachments at the bottom. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps, but I think um, you know I I do all these weekly, uh, and so it's one of those things, man. Where I, I it just needs to happen, and so like there, there's a lot of steps, yes, but it it's all stuff that happens fairly quickly. There's like you know put highlights show into collection it's just a check to make sure that i've done that you've done it yes yeah uh and that's more so what they are is to like make sure i don't forget anything uh which is i don't know it it, it kind of works yeah i was gonna say i I don't have quite as many steps but then actually probably most of what i'll do very similar stuff except i don't do so I don't do Twitch. I don't do. Obviously, I don't have the Patreon side. The mm-hmm. things to worry about. I do the YouTube. I I played with YouTube um, links at the end of the episode. I'm I, I'm putting up on Monday um, after your um, advice last time. So how's that going? I, I, I've got two cards up on, on the end, and and it seems to work. So yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, Pretty neat, huh? Mm, so mm. and relatively easy. So quite pleased with that now we've got the next step is once i'm happy with that is then putting something in in the middle but um i'm not there yet um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes yeah let's see here so, uh, so I... yeah for those of you watching nick has, has been on the case of for the all the stuff behind the scenes it's um we now the rest of the um of the lab can now see everything that goes into it and i think maybe we have a slightly better appreciation of why you don't sleep very much ah yes yeah well i mean part of it's because you know i have a a a toddler but but um you know all things aside i i i do put a lot of work into the lab that is true however um i i think it's necessary especially for what we're trying to accomplish with the lab i think there's um how do i put this the um The amount of you get what you get in what you put it you get out what you put in that's what i'm trying to say yeah yes. so um juicy's work squeeze yeah exactly <laughs> um, all right that doesn't work jeez i really need to figure this out because i okay yeah that is so weird uh maximum square both height and width must be the same it is and it's just not the right size but it's so weird because when I change the size, it like messes up everything else. Um, and so like if I did like a ten by ten, maybe is that twice? So Nick basically has twenty minutes to sort this out. Um, I don't. Have, I have a little bit longer, but it would be great if I could <laughs> figure it out. Because then I go into the show feeling um pretty. Happy. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it'll be sat at the back of your mind. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. I think I, I think I figured it out. Hold on. So what if I did fifteen by fifteen, and then because that didn't seem to change anything, and if I do this, then perhaps 
We should be good. Let me just try it and we'll see what happens when I do that. And we'll do this. Of course, no one can see what I'm actually doing here. But I'm sure it's very exciting. But it is very exciting. I'm changing awesome. numbers behind the scenes. Oh, hell yeah, that worked. Okay, great. No, we're we're fantastic. Uh -huh. Look at that. Okay, no, we're good. Hi, everybody. Now I'm ready to now I'm actually ready to be here. I wasn't actually looking at anything going on. I was had my head over there. But here's what's here's what's gonna happen today, guys. We're gonna talk about paramedics with jetpacks. It's gonna be a great episode. It's gonna be a whole lot of fun. Um, I've been actually looking forward to this show for two weeks. Um since uh since it came into the uh, the the poll on both Patreon and um, Twitter, and uh, you know it's um, it's going to be great. It will be. Yes, I'm I'm very much looking forward, especially as the whole story is based around the Lake District in the UK, and that's where I'm from. That is where you're from. Okay, cool. That, that, that's, was, that's my old stomping ground. You know, I was going to ask um, your familiarity with that district, that area. Yes, um, very. In fact, I very. I, I grew up just just north of there, really. Um, so I often say, even though I'm living in Wales, which is a very beautiful part of the country, but there is nowhere I think in the UK that is as beautiful as the Lake District. Um, it's very rugged. It's um, the the whole you know, the, the whole weather system and that can it can be bright, sunny, beautiful sunshine one minute, and then literally like fog and everything, and like the next, and it just it sends you through a roller coaster of emotions to live there. So this will be interesting because you actually have real life experience in that area um, mm -hmm. that you can then uh, come to us with Indeed. and tell us about. I'm very excited fact, to hear about I've this. I've known people who are part of the, the mountain rescue in that area and also know a couple of people who've actually had to be rescued by helicopter off, in fact, a, um, a guy I knew at secondary school, uh, sorry, at uh, sixth form. He, um, he had to be rescued in the Lake District by helicopter, and we was very lucky to be alive. Mm. Um, so, so, so one thing I'm going to want to pick your brain on, Barry, is is kind of what makes it so unique. Because I think they talk about it in the article. I don't know if we talk about it in the blurb here, uh, but the things, the the geographic uh, mm. attributes that make that area unique, I think, would be a good thing for you to pick up on um, and and talk about it. Um, I, I know it. Uh, has, um, yeah, it has some interesting information has, here. We've got that bit. Yeah, that bit. But th but I mean, there's there's some other stuff going on with it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the space. There's it's the ruggedness of the terrain. I I bring some of it out. So you can see in the notes, I've actually bought the physical stuff right up to the top above. So I know you put the behavioral issues yeah. and stuff. I bought the physical stuff so we can talk about the. Almost, um, I almost sort of treat this as a bit, a bit like a task analysis. That let's talk about the task and the the physical elements of it, and then get into the um, into then wider issues that you brought into it. Does that work for you? That works great for me. That's Excellent. fantastic. Yeah, I think um, I was just throwing stuff in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I as well, just I think my my stuff's more important than your stuff. Yeah, that's why you put it at the top. Oh. Um, See, how, how big headed am I getting now? <laughs> I, I, I win one little election, think I run the, run, run the world. I've run the world yeah, now, by the way. No, ki no kidding. <laughs> well, hey, hey, we should have an out ego contest because um, it as uh, one of the other efforts that um, <laughs> one of the other efforts that we've <laughs> been working on in the lab is kind of an internal wiki. 
uh barry you should just go to the lab lab members page um uh where's actually yeah it's uh it's under um the uh info yeah i need to get the the actual wiki itself on the side yeah i i haven't been studiously um because i've changed my laptop then i haven't been able to repopulate all of my links into my um oh into my thingy bar thingy bar that's a good word thingy bar yes um bookmark bar that's the one that's it where is oh if you, if you, you put it in the lab didn't you? Not that. i don't know why i'm even looking at that yeah you could look in the discord you could look in uh yeah um, I, you know what i just realized is i could just send you a link um <laughs> wow so you just let me struggle all this time there you go. Um, oh, you're a dead. Thank you. Uh, so, so yeah. If if you look under "Meet the Founder," that's where uh, I think the um, the ego competition will happen here. <laughs> yeah, just just you can you can read it uh, out loud. So, so what, what we've got here? We we've got a bit for lab members. Um, oh, thirteen of us. So we're a distributed team of thirteen and counting. So there needs to be more. We need to bring that number up. Spread across the globe. That's true. We occasionally organize in-person meetups. We've never met yet. We need to do that. Um, and if you're new, please update this message. Oh, I need to put the... Yeah, so so meet the founder. So there's a, a, an awesome picture of Nick looking happy and <clears> jovial. <throat> and we'll change that. Um, so Nick started the podcast in 2016 and founded the lab in 2021 as a side I thought it was longer than that, to be honest. Um, as a side project and it helped grow into what it is today. Learn more about Nick's inflated ego in the early days of Human Factors Casting. The story Wait, Factors Casting. Who added the inflated ego? <laughs> Someone added inflated ego. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that's very funny. Good. The um, we can keep it. That's fine. Well, that, that, that's the, uh, the the thing of Wiki, isn't it? <laughs> Anyone um, can edit. <laughs> Anyone in the lab that is. So I need to then put. Oh, I need to put my stuff in. Well, I don't do very much, so yeah, it'll be a very, very short piece. Only a, you know, a couple of pages. Yeah, I mean, you you could uh, put amplifying information there if you'd like. Um, I think some of the lab goal is that we 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 don't want to make anybody intimidated by certain roles that other people hold. Remember, that's that's what we talked about in the lab refresh. <laughs> you, you, so whilst you can have a massive ego piece here, I, I'm not allowed to tell anybody how awesome I am, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. well, yes. Yeah. I'm I'm the founder, the king of the lab, is, yeah, okay. essentially. We, we're just not allowed to take anyone. So I'll, I'll leave mine at that then. Based in the UK. <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, actually, is... Oh. I just realized I don't have a monitor up to see like if we are truly live, uh, so I should probably do that. Um, there we go. That's All right. Uh, if you're wondering why we're not picking out um, it came froms or anything like that, it's because uh, I, I was on a good one and um, did the show notes yeah. ahead of time. We've also had two weeks to make the show notes, so I feel like if they're not done, then that's really bad. That's tough already. Uh, I, I to, one more thing. Um, 
I do have my one more thing in there. Um, oh, no, okay. So um, just for everyone's awareness, if you do want to know what we're talking about for It Came From, while Barry is uh, hastily putting in his one more thing. Done it. I'm, I'm we have, yeah, we, we have a couple questions here. Um, how do I kindly push back on a suggestion made by a dev? Uh, advice for conducting asynchronous activities. And is it a red flag to anyone else if a company says they tend to have a one-week turnaround time for research? So those will be some good questions we can answer. Um, I have answers for two of them, and I hope you have the answer for the other one, uh, the one that I commented on there. Because truthfully, I'm looking for uh, an answer myself. And uh, I will give some names, some idea of what I do now asynchronously. But Oh. Yeah. Oh, 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 I might, I might let you down on that one. Oh, oh, okay. No, well, I think we'll be okay. We'll make it through. Yeah, not to, no, I've, I've got, I, I've got a solution that I use. It, it, I do it for different reasons. It's not time zones, but I do run asynchronous workshops. Um, yeah, yeah no, that'll be good. That'll be good. That's cool. Yeah, no, that's cool. cool. Um, yeah, for my one more thing, I, I need to have a moan about my car. You know, my wonderful car that the the Patreon hasn't paid for. Um, oh wait, did you, the EV? Yeah. What you got it, and it's now no, no yikes! Yeah, I haven't got it. Oh, That's, you have not got I'm, it. Okay, not yet. I was supposed to have it, and then they've changed. Now, anyway, I'll, yeah. tell, I'll tell you all about that. Great, um, I'm looking forward to it. That'll double the length of the. Um, of the podcast so you might cut that bit out but you know all right well I still you know need, what if don't need to get it off my chest if if that section goes on um for you know 30 minutes or more we can certainly cut that out uh that's okay. that's what i do back here when i produce that 50 step checklist that is to cut out very <laughs> stuff um, yes i think quite a lot of people do that if i'm, if I'm honest it's, uh... Well, hey, we're here, we're here in the in the pre-show um why don't we talk about some fun things going on barry you've been off earlier this week at uh, a certain conference is that right yeah so we've been at the online version so the uh, ehf 2022 run by the chinese institute of economics and human factors uh, they split the conference into two so we've got an online version which is uh two days so that was monday and tuesday of this week and then we've got a live version in-person version which is in two weeks time so we had um the first element of that and so monday tuesday we had the conference launch uh, which was fab and i was kind of blown away in the end because i didn't know quite whether all this was going to happen but i've been banging on about climate ergonomics and how we as human factors practitioners can make a change and all that sort of stuff well actually they made the first um element of the conference all about sustainability and wow. and i was blown away because I, I knew we obviously we'd submit submit a couple of papers so i knew there was going to be a bit of that in there and i thought they might tack it on because we want to try and make a, a really big deal of it next year and um but then we ended up being the first session in fact the my the keynote that i got in was the first keynote um and we did the keynote slightly differently so rather than just having um brett fall from one of our local business groups um one of the uk business groups talking i actually did an interview and so i used restream to interview him and so we recorded it and, and played that through and that was fab um we so we we had a um a, a pay an in, me giving an interview as the first bit then we had a paper that i'd written as the second bit but thankfully uh, one of my team presented that rather than me 
Then we had another couple of papers, and then we had me presenting about my climate command and control system that I want to make, and then we had me in, in a panel discussion. So I had a little bit of input, which was awesome. Uh, did my ego amazing amounts of good. Mm. Um, but then went into, so then there was three other sessions, um, all not as good, clearly, no, joking. They, they were all, in fact, there was some really, really interesting um, stuff up there. Um, all around defense, we had a bit on um, um, UX, which was truly fascinating. We had um, uh, Gigi Deming from uh, Google tell us around her experiences of, of, of UX and how she'd entered um, sort of the, the UX arena um, really in its, in its early days and saw it go through its development to where it is today. Um, and one thing that she said that I would, which I just love, um, mainly because it's something I've thought and I use in some of my lecture material, is that the differences between human factors and, and UX is we kind of do the same sort of stuff, but human factors normally takes a, an, an approach of make sure it gets done and gets done safely um, in you know, generalizing wildly. But UX takes the, takes the approach of get it done and get it done in a way that delights the, uh, delights the user. And it's that idea of delighting the or, uh, the person who's using it, which is, a, I think, a key differentiator between the two. And, and um, I liked her because she agreed with me. Um, so that was really interesting. So yeah, no, we've we've had a really really good um, start to the conference, and but I, I am quite looking forward to the in person conference because yeah. Be do, wide you, do you have any insight as to why they split it up over a couple weeks rather than you know one week then the next? I think it was just to, I think that the plane with the former and, and kind of seeing what works because I think if they'd had it back to back, so you, cause they could have had it two days virtual and then two days physical, but actually trying to organize that would still have the same problems that the other organizing anything. You know, if you go from the virtual bit to then go to the physical bit, would it be too much too quick? Mm -hmm. so if you have a week space in between the two, then you could do that, but then that's probably quite close together. But at least if you, split it out a bit slightly further than that so in the, the two-week gap that we've got we can almost um exploit all of that stuff we've done good stuff we've done in the virtual stuff allow people to talk about it um you know interact over it share it um and then that means when we get to the physical bit which obviously less people can interact interact with really because the physical conference you're limited by numbers um i think the, the it just allows allows us to basically spread it out over a long period of time and, and get the benefit of it yeah. Um, I think anyway, um, I, I wasn't part of that decision making. Well, hey, uh, we, we now know a guy on the inside. So, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you to tell that person. Um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go and have a word with them. Yeah. You know, you know, it'd be interesting is if you did it the other way around. You did in person and then you take all the lessons learned, anything that you recorded in person and present it during the online um section so that way you are getting that knowledge that only people who could attend in person you're you're getting that out into the online space that True. might be an additional way to present that information anyway just a thought um no it is and then and the obviously the third way is completely hybrid so yeah. doing both at the same time i've got to you know um um things out on the table as it were i'm not a fan of hybrid i'm not a fan of hybrid solutions i think you in trying to get the best of both worlds, you diminish both sides. And I, I want to be proven wrong. I want somebody to show me a, a good hybrid solution and show me that it works. But I kind of feel you're trying to, you either focus, it's a bit like having a um, teleconference when you, you know, you're all clustered around a table and you're all 
you basically everything runs because of the person on the other phone um you know you 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 it's it's not i you know the person on the other phone can't see what's going on but the people in the room can't move around and, and share body language because the person on the other phone and i think for me hybrid kind of feels the same i want to prove but you I, wrong I, so I, badly i really do you can't I really do <laughs> i will i will i will prove you wrong okay. I, I give you couple examples right now one um if you have a presenter in person you take that camera feed or whatever throw it online um people interact and you know you you might have you you need a team you need a team for it absolutely but if you have the volunteers and you have the infrastructure in place you just kind of say hey well here's um you know a question from so and so online how do you answer that you know it, it you have an arbiter of somebody who's you know, taking the online questions, you have the person who's controlling the online stuff in person there in the room, um, making sure that all the audience questions can be heard uh, yeah. and kind of navigating that piece. Right. So that's that's one way to do it. You get chat from online from a physical. Right. And that's I think Which I, probably I can, see that, I can see that working and I can see that working very well. Yeah. Um, Right, so that's that's a hybrid approach that does work. The the approach that does not work so well is when you have an online presenter, because what are you going to do? Like movie theater it up, you know? You have kind of a, um, like a like a like a projection of a on a screen of somebody presenting this stuff, mm-hmm. and that could work if if that track or that session is online only you wouldn't want to mix the two and have you know somebody go online and then somebody in person and have to that's messy but if you had somebody online you just project it onto a screen everyone in person could go to that sit in listen and pull up an app on their phone and just type in or hell you could do this for the you know other um the other version to type in your phone questions and it's just all handled through the online chat and somebody moderating that online chat. So it could be done. It could be done. Mm-hmm. I did see, I, I did present at a conference in December where it was a live conference um, because it was defensive stuff and they get a bit shirty about projecting off the internet. But the yeah. the questions were be, were handled through an app. So rather than sticking your hand up and, you know, the post post yeah. it, um, they had people who felt intimidated about asking questions, especially in that, that audience, we were able to submit them online and they had a moderator feeding them to me then so i said oh we've had this question come in can you answer that and so then i could answer that to the general population my my thing around hybrid really is i mean as you describe it um that could that could absolutely work very well and hold on can i say can i say one more thing before before you put in your problem with hybrid the only other thing i'd recommend is a camera feed from the stage to the audience for the presenter online Yes, so they can see, yeah. Um, but then, I mean, my so my thing with it is, and so like the, the first scenario that you described where you're presenting and you can get the questions in online, da, 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 that works really well, I think, if, you're, if you've got the equipment to do it, you're set up to do it, and you've got the staff to do it. Um, you know, the team around you, the volunteers, whatever, to, to make it all flow. Yeah. But even then, from a presenter perspective, you can, you're either presenting to the room or you're presenting to the camera. I think you... Sh- struggle to do both well um because just because the nature of i think presenting online and presenting in a real in real person um as it were in, in irl then then for me well and it might just be me i like flo- flouncing my arms around quite a lot but treat it the, like a ted talk treat it like a ted talk well yeah but even so i'd 
I, I just think if if you're I, if I'm in a room and I'm presenting, I like to walk around and, and do that and and make the most of the space and the, the reactions of the people in the room. If I two different audience, I can give the same presentation to two different audiences and there'll be two very different presentations. Uh, whereas if I'm doing something online, um, that will be different again. I think it's 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 something we I need to work on, uh, and I get that I, because I think they can be as equal. Just my experiences to date don't endear me to them. Um, I mean the the talk I was meant to give when I had COVID, um, they had so that was going to be a hybrid, and they had two hundred people signed up online, and five in person, and and I was very much of the opinion, well, do we just in the five in person and get them to come online as well and right. do it all online so we get the experience you know everyone gets the same experience um but then i got covered instead so it kind of yeah. not deliberately not i didn't get covered just because i didn't want to do a hybrid presentation that was uh-huh. quite yeah bad. i got you <laughs> uh we'll figure out the hybrid stuff it'll happen who knows yeah. maybe it'll even happen later this year i don't know well yeah that's um I'm, I'm sure we can make some some fun happen somewhere and you don't and, and until until you play with this stuff and experiment with it then yeah. you don't, we're not going to get the right sort of results are we yeah it could be fun um hey we are going to we're going to go live here in just a minute so if you've been hanging out with us hang out just a little bit longer we're going to take a quick break and right after that's done we're going to start this podcasting thing that we like to call human factors cast and it's going to be a great episode yeah. jetpacks paramedics it's got a little bit of everything what more could you want? Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, hello. Episode 241. We're recording this live on April 14th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening. How are you? I'm well. You have a new title, Barry. (laughs) I do. It's very exciting. I'm delighted to say that I'm now the president-elect of the Charity Institute of Economics and Human Factors. And now I, I should have my own something now at the start of every show. Yeah, you should. Um, you're like <laughs> King Barry Kirby, Sir Barry Kirby. What is, is there an official president-elect? President-elect, yes. Barry Kirby. Anyway, we got we got a great show. Not to glance over your achievements, Barry. Congratulations. <laughs> We've got a great show for you tonight. We're actually going to be talking about how jetpacks might be used in the near future to save people's lives. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about how to push back on developer suggestions, advice for conducting asynchronous activities, and red flags when considering research turnaround time. But first, some programming notes. Um Hey, if you haven't already, we have put out that HFVS Town Hall. This is the first official episode since we've put that out. Uh, We sat down. We had a conversation with HFVS leadership. We were talking about uh, all that fun stuff over HFVS, especially around outreach. You should go check it out if you haven't already. And, Barry, I understand that you uh, have some stuff going on at 1202, the Human Factors podcast. What's going on over there? Yeah, so twelve or two. I think the last time we were going to have, an, um, uh, have this discussion, we just put out an episode around fire. This time we're looking at agriculture, 
And we just recorded an interview with John Owen, who's basically is the research project manager at, at Gethlyaya, which is a farm campus of a further education college here in Wales called Colic Cigar. He was good enough to basically give me a bit of an insight about how they use an IoT and technology, sensor technologies in particular, about how to give farmers uh, a bit of an edge into decision making. And then he gives you know a bit of background into the sort of decisions they need to make around weather and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to go live on Monday. And then you talk about HFES leadership. Next week, I'm recording a, a um, an episode with none other than Chris himself, Chris Reed. So Ooh. hopefully, if that all happens and, and goes ahead, then um, I'll be able to give you a bit of an insight from this side of the pond about what we think about HFES. Is Chris the only person that we've both had on our podcast? As it, well, Tony. We both had Tony, Tony on it. Yeah. Tony. Um, yeah. Yes, I think so far. There might be some other. But we'll change we'll all Yes, we will. Uh, one more update here. Uh, we we are always uh, taking excited volunteers for our Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. We got a lot of really fun stuff going on over there. In fact, we've just done a whole update on our lab infrastructure uh, to make sure that that transition for volunteers is a good onboarding process. If you are interested in helping communicate human factors, if you're interested in creating content that will help others digest human factors, psychology, uh, in a way that is effectively communicated. I encourage you to reach out to us. Uh, we are always looking for folks. But we know why you're here. You are here for the news, so why don't we go ahead and get into it? You know, I understand that people skip parts of the show. That intro is usually what people skip. So we're, we're looking for people for the lab. I'm going to say it one more time just after that break. Anyway, we know why you're here. You're here for the news. Barry, what is the news story this week? The news story this week is amazing. We're talking about jet suit paramedics ready for a summer liftoff. Really what we're going to hear is paramedics in the Lake District here in the United Kingdom hope to be using jet suits to reach medical emergencies this summer. Currently, they use helicopters that take around 25 to 30 minutes to reach a patient in the Lake District once the crew has found an area flat enough to land. Once this program is operational, the jetpack operation, medics will be able to fly up, up a hill in 90 seconds rather than taking that 30 minutes by foot that it takes to get there. The jet suit consists of two mini engines, one on, on, on each arm and one on the back, allowing the pilot to control their movement just by moving their just by moving their hands. We've all seen Iron Man. It can ascend quickly, saving valuable time by flying close to the land. There is a major advantage for using this technology in the Lake District as the jet suit can be used in poor conditions, such as low visibility and strong winds, which would pose a challenge to a helicopter. And anybody who's been to the Lake District know that low visibility and strong winds are very common. The suits have also been proven to be effective in 35 mile an hour winds and, according to the data, could be used on 15 to 20 medical cases a week. Paramedics will need to fly with around 10 to 15 kilos or 20 to 35 pounds of medical kit, including a defibrillator, patient monitoring devices, which are strapped into pouches on the pilot's legs and chest. The idea is to get paramedics to patients in emergency care faster than ever, which could mean more people survive if, than, than expected if they normally had a, a longer response time. So Nick, do, would you like to have the equivalent of a paramedic Ironman come into a Coming to save you in the in the in the Lake District. Look, uh, so let me first preface this by saying we, you and I, Barry, talked a lot last week on our Human Factors and Chill Human Factors Hangout uh, about jetpacks. Um, in fact, that's why we repackaged that as a separate podcast episode because there was so much good discussion there about the Human Factors issues surrounding jetpacks, and we'll get to some of it today. 
Um, so I want to preface it with that. But on the surface, this is an awesome premise. But as we kind of discovered last week, um, you know, there's a lot of hoops that we need to jump through to get to the benefits that something like this could provide. Um, like I said, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I am curious on what your initial thoughts on this are. So, yeah, the we did go through um, a whole lot of stuff last week that I think is two hours worth of content there, which was really good fun. But the fundamentally with this, it feels on the on on one hard part of me that feels very excited about we playing with this sort of technology now, and it makes it. Um, I mean, I made a couple of references to Iron You watch things on the movies where they've done that sort of thing. It makes it, it's, it this technology is becoming accessible, um, but it also does feel like it's a bit of a fad. Like it's a, is it more risky than actually useful? Um, do you, you know, I think we need to step through a whole lot of the issues to work out, is this something that is actually truly going to save lives? Um, or do, you know, even take a step back, is going to make life easier for people? Um, or is it just going to look cool? Because um, who doesn't want to be a rocket man? Um, yeah. But um, I'm not, part of me in, you know, my heart loves it. My head thinks this is, it's not as cool as it could be. I think I think we're on the same page there. Um, and let's, let's paint the picture for our listeners here. Uh, this is an audio format podcast. So you actually have experience living in the Lake District, and it has some very unique properties. Can you just briefly describe what makes the Lake District unique and why they're trying this technology there? Right, let's go with wet first. The The, the Lake District is a very wet place. So the, the whole, the Lake District is north of England. Um, so if you look at a map, it's basically the, um, the north uh, west of England, just below Scot below the Scottish border, if you're in large handfuls. So it's in, in Cumbria. And it's a glaciated uh, terrain, which means that through the Ice Age, when when the glaciers moved through um, that that um, that part of the country, it created a rather unique um, uh, terrain, which is good. So it's got lots of hills on it, very um, very rugged terrain in that respect. It's in some respects, it's got some quite rolling hills, but then it's also got some some quite sharp rock formations. Um, it, it, parts of it are very open and very barren, so that means that your the wind um, is quite significant. The when it truly gets into raining, rain horizontal rain is is, is quite quite well seen. Um, but then, you know, almost in the same day, you could have that all that the um, the rain roll back, the clouds roll back. And you get beautiful sunshine and you know fantastic scenery. Where a lot of people, so it's a it's a heavy tourist destination. Um, and so what makes it quite popular um, for why they have the mountain rescue teams there is people will often go walking, thinking you know it's a beautiful day, um, sling on a, a little backpack with maybe a bottle of water and, and 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 a chocolate bar and go wandering up the hill because why not? It's a beautiful day. You can crack on and do that. But then they can get about halfway up, and suddenly again the clouds come back down. You lose what you lose where you're going, um, so you, you lose orientation. You you don't you don't have the right clothes with you, so you get wet through. You get cold. Hypothermia is very very common, um, and so just because that changing nature of the weather combined with the um, with, with, with that terrain makes it a very unique place to be um the number so that you have normal mountain rescue teams that go out that are all volunteer organizations that'll go out if, if the if you get um a casualty on a hill or even somebody's just in distress 
the mountain rescue team will be the first ones on call to go out there. And they're normally just walkers themselves, you know, that they'll have special kit and um, perhaps a, a Land Rover, that type of thing. They'll go out and find casualties. But then if the casualty is severely injured enough, then you get the um, the Helimed come out, the helicopter medical team come out and then will airlift casualties off. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into um, one of the areas of the UK that I actually consider to be the most beautiful part of um, part of the UK, but it can also be the most treacherous. Right. So, so painting that picture really kind of illustrates why they're testing this there. There's a lot of really unique geological features that makes it difficult to, for search and rescue medical teams to get to folks who might be in precarious uh, conditions. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about since we're talking about the physical side of things, let's talk about the physical features of what a jackpack is. Kind of rehash some of our conversation of last week. Um, some of the human factors issues with human factors and and jetpacks in general. Um, so just to kind of briefly describe this system again, I know it was in the blurb, but you have sort of uh, a jet on each wrist, jets at each wrist uh, that help you control directionality. And then you have sort of one on your back that, presumably controls thrust, upward thrust. Uh, and so you're able to, when you kind of move your body in certain ways, move forward, move backwards. You're, you're right. We have all seen Iron Man. We kind of get the gist of how that might work. We saw him learning, crash on the car, robot, you know, gets him with the fire extinguisher, all that stuff. That's kind of what's going on here, but without the the comedy. Um, and really, we're looking at kind of training in various stages where you have uh, sort of this tethered state where you're kind of on a stage, you're tethered, you're kind of learning to to control this. And I'm talking from the paramedics perspective here. You're learning to control this this um, the suit. And once you've learned that, then you kind of go into the smaller scale tests of getting off of that tether and doing short jumps from point A to point B. And then once that's, you know, once you've kind of mastered that, then you move on to the next stage, which ultimately leads you to being able to save people. And at some point along the way, you're going to have to, you know, test it with all this equipment on you, all this kit uh, that you have to carry the defibrillator, uh, the the medical supplies, all that stuff. Um, Barry, do you want to go through some of the usability issues of, of jetpacks and what that could mean for these operators? Yeah, I mean, it's worth, so just to... Um pick up on something you just said if you obviously this story is being um uh, supported by underpin uh, by gravity industries who would develop that the jetpack who've done that and if you go to their website they've got um some good videos and youtube links about the training process you have to go through so it's it's worth having a look at that to see how how you step through that but if we were to focus directly on on the task that is being used for here in terms of being a paramedic so for me the the, the flight there is is part of the story you know, so you, you imagine you're you're at your um, you, you're at the base. You get the call. So the helicopter uh, team would then, if they to to do a comparison, would then go and pre-flight checks. They would you know the suitor pre-flight checks, and get into the air. <clears throat> now the the same is going to be the same for you in a suit. That um, you've got to do. You know, you've got to suit up. Presumably, you're not walking around with this on all the time because presumably it's weighty and uncomfortable. You probably need to fuel it up. Um, it has a a, a limited fuel range. Um, Though presumably that's going to get better. So, as you've described, you have these thrusters on uh, these jets on so two jets on the on each wrist and one on your back. That's right. So you you've got to 
suitable. You've got to go take get all his kit, make sure you you've got it there. You've then got to um when you get to your casualty, you've then got to be able to perform medical tasks. You've then got to be able to do something. So the pictures that we've seen show that these jets actually go down quite low down your hand because you've got almost like a gauntlet on. So being able to then um, you know, perform CPR, be able to dress a wound, be able to uh, do anything like that. You presumably have to take this sort of stuff off or stash it in some way. Um, so there's going to be a level of how do you do that? Because presumably it's it's a jet, it's going to get hot. Um, how do you stop that that the jet cowling touching you? Um, you know, because you, you don't want to burn your hands off trying to get this trying to get this thing off. And more importantly, probably you don't want to burn the casualty um, because if you've got that there, then that's so fundamentally whilst it's if you get there quickly but then you have to spend like half an hour taking this kit off and making it safe before you then perform uh medical interventions are you doing it any quicker don't know i you probably presumably take it off fairly quickly i would like to think and dump it at yeah. the side but you know you you get you get it there um so yeah you you need to be able to fly there you need to be able to take it off do stuff um what is the range of it? So they, they've talked about being able to fly for around, you know, uphill in, in 90 seconds, um, which is great. Um, you've got, they talk about taking loads of kit with them as the, that we said in the blurb. So presumably you'll be able to get there, <clears throat> de um, take the, the the thing off or make it safe or whatever that, that means, get the right sort of kit out and, and apply it. Um, but then, I sort of then get get into my uh, safety case stuff, and there's two big things that worry me to a certain extent. Firstly, what happens if it goes wrong, um, or you forget how much fuel you've used? Because that I should imagine that you know if you're in a helicopter or even in in a plane, if you run out of fuel, you've got glide or you can auto rotate or 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 that type of thing. If you run out of fuel with the, wearing this suit, and you're maybe you've you know in the Lake District, it's quite easy to be thinking that you're going quite low over the ground. And then suddenly for a big um, valley to open up in front of you or a crevasse or, you know, that, that uh, uh, big rock formation. If you suddenly run out of fuel whilst you're in that position, um, you then turn into a very fast brick. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's only, you've, you've, won, you've got velocity. So you're going to hit something hard. Um, but presumably, again, you... I, I assume you, you're gonna we're gonna have cues, so you need some sort of cueing in the um, in some sort of either on your body or in ideally is it some sort of heads up display um, that you know what your range is, you know what your um, what any alerts that are going on, you know how 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 are you gonna know if there's a if there's an error in one of the thrusters and what impact that has on what on what you're doing. Um, so how all that all that gets managed in a way that isn't just based on feel um, because. That, you know, I can imagine that's how this is. You know, you'd be able to feel if you're sort of losing losing trust in on one of your wrists type of thing. And the only other thing for me that I thought was interesting was around navigation. Um, so you you don't really know where you're going. You you've you've been you've had a phone call off of a casualty or somebody who's with a casualty. Um, a helicopter when it flies up there, you basically you've generally got at least three sets of eyes. You've got pilot, a co-pilot, and 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 a medic. Um, in the back, or even if you've just got two, that's still two pairs of eyes. Um, you'll, you'll have had a rough, um, presumably rough location, but then, as I said, the, the terrain tends can can be quite bleak. Um, and if you're in a closed in, as in the, 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 the fog's rolled in or the mist rolled in, um, normally on a helicopter, you've at least got the ability to sort of slow down, 
taking your take your bearings, slowly do searches across the terrain until you find your casualty. I don't think you know where your casualty pinpointed your casualty is straight away. So your ninety seconds suddenly becomes way more than that. Um, so if you're not getting there straight away and you run out of flight time, how how does that work? Now there is solutions to that. So I guess the you know I don't know whether you I presume you have in the states the the new what three words yeah uh, app. So if you if you got what, what three words that takes you down to a to a three meter squ- uh, triangle. Uh, so if that's built into the way it goes, then possibly that that's a way of helping it. But again, you're going to need some sort of display to be able to sort of uh, way uh, wayfind for you and and things right. like that. So there are stacks of I think. And I don't think any of this is insurmountable. This is just me being um, taking something that I'm very excited about and then breaking it down. So t- taking it out of my heart and putting it, on, putting it in my head, and and doing the the the, the analysis that you'd look at and go and wait, wait, because my head normally takes all the fun out of everything, um, and start thinking about the what ifs and and you know you, if we were to sit there and do a proper um, you know why why analysis and all that sort of stuff and, and break this thing down, then I'm sure we can come up with loads of solutions to all of it. But I think. This is one that sort of thinking is why I feel it is still a bit of a fad. There's yeah. still a lot of work to be done. I mean, honestly, we're working right now. We're we're trying to break this down from a practical standpoint of like what are some of the challenges that they might mm-hmm. experience here. And that was a really good overview of just the physical piece that is going on here too, right? I mean, we, we talked about some of the usability issues with the jetpack, and I think we we recapped a lot of the stuff that we talked about last week. <clears throat> For, for more in-depth discussion, go listen to that. But but honestly, there's much more going on than just the physical aspects of these jetpacks, right? You have sort of um, the, the mental side of it going on from the paramedics perspective too. So not only are they uh, pairing this with some of their traditional job responsibilities, now they have this whole other type of thing that they have to manage in, in navigating with a jetpack on. And so it's a different beast. And I thought it was a good idea for us to kind of go through and talk about some of the behavioral and human factors issues when it comes to first responders and look at it through the lens of this story um, and, and pair it with all these issues that we talked about with a jetpack too. So, you know, first off, first and foremost, right, these, these public health and safety workers, they have a broad range of health and mental health consequences because of the work that they do. Uh, either, you know, exposed to natural or human caused disasters or uh, anything like that. And one of the top things that you'll see out of any sort of first responder is depression. It's it's so commonly reported uh, and rates of depression as well as severity um, kind of vary across studies. But there's a couple instances here where in a control study uh, of certified EMS professionals, depression was reported in 6.8 with mild depression. Um, which was the most common type. And then uh, you also have medical team workers who are responding to the Great East Japan earthquake back in 2011, where 21.4% of them were diagnosed with clinical depression. So it kind of ranges, but this is a very prevalent issue in which you have to consider. And when you, we'll we'll get into the human factors uh, sort of implications here, in a little bit, but obviously, as we talked about in previous episodes, mental health has a huge impact on your performance and your stress levels when you are trying to perform um, certain duties. And we'll get to performance and all that stuff, safety later. Um, you want to talk a little bit about suicide? 
not really, but um, but but this is an obvious uh, next step because the, I mean, you're right. You when you look at the the whole depression side of things, it's no wonder when you consider the job that they're having to do, you know, and they see people at their best, but also see people at their you know most vulnerable, um, and at the worst when when thing you know things don't go right. So it's it's almost then no wonder that actually suicide ideation has been reported in first responders in a number of studies. Um, but there's still there are still questions around, around the rates, given the way the data has been collected. Um, but existing research does suggest that um, emergency medical um, responders personnel may be more likely than the general population to think about and attempt suicide. So there has been a literature review where suicide uh, thoughts and ideation in EMS and paramedics were evaluated as compared to the general population. Um, and that, based on the findings from the study, a lifetime prevalence rate of 28% for feeling that life is not worth living. 10.4% for serious suicide ideation, 3.1% for having actually had a past suicide attempt. So it is um, it is one of these things that obviously we don't want to focus on necessarily too much in overplay, but the the environment that they work in and um, the, the things they see and have to put up with and the consequences because it not all of these trips uh, end up in a happy ending um right. and it's it's they it's them that have to process that and in many ways you, you see it on a lot of programs where um they almost it's that scoop and run thing is they bring people into the hospital and they often don't necessarily know what the outcome was um until either much later if if they do at all so you know it's it's having to process one after the other and then get ready for the next for the, for the next one yeah on and, that and point ALSMHF issues <laughs> yeah well there, there's obviously overlap between mental health and and human factors issues and i think one thing that this really uh this overlap really fits nicely in is kind of this stress and post-traumatic stress uh so i mean if you think about some of these stress symptoms or ptsd symptoms that EMS personnel have reported, there's a number of studies that when you look at what they're experiencing, right? So if you look at uh, another lit review here, EMS and paramedics reported higher um, traumatic disassociation at the time of the Loma Prieta Bay Area earthquake in 1989 compared to uh, police. So, you know, even just looking at the differences between first responders, you also have a study in Germany where 16.8% of emergency physicians had probable PTSD. And then you have, you know, a case control study among EMS professionals where stress was reported in 6%, where mild stress being the most common type. So even though it's mild, even though it's only in 6%, you're still introducing all these different factors into sort of uh, the normal, I guess, everyday lives of these professionals. And one thing to consider is that they take it home with them, first off, and that can be really, really bad for home relationships, um, especially when you consider PTSD. And bringing it now back to the human factor side of things, when you consider stress, PTSD on the job, those can be huge performance uh, sort of hits, right? If you're bringing stress, you're bringing PTSD, those can have a huge impact on on performance. What about performance, Barry? Well, performance in this field is is significant, isn't it? Because it's it is literally life and death. Um, you know, they they've got very um 
high levels of performance and the need to repeat time and time and time again. So one of the core risk factors is the pace of their work. Uh, the first responders are always on the front line facing highly stressful and risky calls. Um, but that tempo, that always being always on and having to do it time and time again can lead to an inability to integrate work experiences. So again, according to a study, uh, 69% of EMS professionals have never had enough time to recover between traumatic events. So therefore, as a result of that, depression, stress, and post-mortem PTSD, uh, suicide ideation, and a host of other functional relational conditions have been reported. So what we need to look at here is, is understanding how is this, how is everything that we're doing here then going to relate back to um, them actually being able to do the job? And being able to do it, what what does a good performance look like? We see it in hospitals as well, where you know you, you have doctors and surgeons working on, um, you know, working on patients when they're you know being on 12, 14 hour shifts, um, but yet we still expect a high level of performance out of them. Right. So, yeah, do we and want to move on to risk and protective factors. Well, one one sort of really important thing here too with the tempo, right? This is critically important when you when you think about what we're trying to accomplish with this jetpack story, right? We're trying to get to them quicker and thus reducing the amount of time it takes to respond. And so we have to consider this when training these individuals or, you know, setting them up to respond to some of these situations, you need to increase the distance temporally between the time that they pick somebody up and the time that they go out to do it again, because already, if you're looking at sort of this, um, you know, not having enough time to recover between events and you're making it faster, uh, you really need to slow it down and, and have somebody else do it. And that's, you know, you need to train a lot of people to do it. So that way you can trade off uh, the responsibilities. But yeah, let's talk about risk and protective factors. And, and specifically during some of these disastrous events, this is more of sort of a, a broad overview. You're probably not going to have, hopefully, knock on wood, not going to have disastrous natural disasters or human man-made disasters in the Lakes District. But if this technology starts, you know, expanding outside of it, this could be uh, something to consider. So you have risk factors during these disastrous events for first responders, um, and they could be either related to the disaster or the event itself, right? Any any one of these things could cause stress, post-traumatic stress, any of these things, impact on performance. So if you think, if you take another lit review, we're bringing a lot of lit reviews here. We've done our research today. Uh, you, you have sort of these psychological outcomes from these stressful events. You have stress, uh, general well-being, mental disorders, resilience, personal growth, um, all affected when, you know, considering these humanita humanitarian aid workers or similar professionals who are deployed to, af uh, to assist with the aftermath of a disaster. Um, and what they found is that the proximity to that epicenter of the disaster is associated with higher levels of mental health issues. So if you have a jetpack and you're able to get to that center, the epicenter of the disaster first, uh, you, you, there might be some additional considerations that you have to make there for these professionals who are operating in that manner. Likewise, there's other studies here that when you work long hours in unfamiliar or demanding circumstances, not taking a day off each week, uh, it led to surprise, fatigue, mental distress, job dissatisfaction, and subjective health complaints. So again, when you have sort of these humanitarian crises where you need people to go out, perform duties in situations that are not normal, you're you're going to have some additional demands there to think about. 
then you also have, uh, I guess, the somewhat obvious and tragic dealing with serious injuries or bodies of people um, resulting in sort of this this higher probability of developing PTSD, depression, alcohol uh, problems, all this stuff, anxiety. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the job duties or qualities during these events? Yeah, so during the a disaster um, or an event, then the job qualities or, or qualities during it were associated with elevated risks of mental health issues. So not having enough job-related information, um, added extra or unfamiliar or conflicted duties onto two or basically too many people to look after and supervise, direct survivor or family contacts, longer assignments, longer time working with children, working with clients who basically are discussing morbid materials, excessive exposure to gory sights and sounds, environmental hazards, and working as mental health workers, all of that associated with increased skill levels. Then you bring into that um, poor leadership, uh, lack of interagency agreement. They're, they're all seen as additional stressors during a disaster period. And so that gives you low perceived safety. Um, so, sorry, low perceived safety is also associated with increased levels of depression and anxiety and other um, psychiatric symptoms. Yeah. And the last, the last piece here is kind of leadership, right. Or, or lack of direction during these events. Um, and, and so that sort of leads to safety too, because if you don't have leadership, you don't have, um, sort of this perceived safety of having somebody who knows what they're doing. And because of that, you're kind of increasing the levels of depression, anxiety, and other psych psychiatric symptoms but you're when you don't have that safety when you don't have leadership that is critical for when you're operating in these type of high risk environments because safety is everything uh mm-hmm. it could lead to potentially more death right what if you slip up and accidentally burn your victim with your jetpack on i it's a lot to consider and you know there are some things after a disaster too like all this all this stuff that we talk about is really you're going to take this home with you um, and so the more that we can do to help train these individuals or establish processes, procedures in place that will help reduce some of these mental health issues with first responders that will help with the usability of the jetpack. Even if something's easier to use, they're going to be less stressed doing it because they'll feel confident doing it. All this together kind of paints the picture of this very complex issue of giving paramedics jetpacks. Now, let's kind of bring it back to the article. Barry. I want to make sure that we have some time to hit some closing thoughts because we mm-hmm. did have a lot of thoughts on this. So what are some <laughs> things that you want to take away from this? So I guess there's a little, I, I, I sort of painted a bit of context about the, the terrain and stuff that this thing's got to work in. <clears throat> but the, we've also got to think about the, you know, how the, the context that this is being run in. So the, the trials on this started in September 2020, but obviously, covid as with everything took the joy out of everything um and they've also had difficulty fight, fighting uh, finding sponsors to cover the cost now that's really important because in the uk air ambulances are all charities um they're not run as part of the national health service or anything like that and so they're all funded by donations now if you think about how much that costs and the advantage it gives you etc cetera, etc cetera, the running this as a trial is going to use up that them funds um on, on this so how are we going to um justify that cost to people who, who are giving to the charity um 
so far, one member of the Great North Air Ambulance has completed their training using the suit unassisted, and, and they're going to get a couple of more on board. And it will give you, as we mentioned earlier, quite a significant um, performance um, increase. So if we talk about, you know, in, just in terms of being able to reach a, a casualty, um, they're going to be up towards that casualty in 90 seconds rather than that 30 minutes. Fantastic. Um, but I sort of, in, in another part of the article, I thought there was a bit of a sort of concerning quote where they say it's, it's a machine that's attached to your body. You have to find the balance point. And we're in a job where we challenge ourselves. There's a lot of pressure on us to make it work, but it has a real purpose to get to people who need urgent medical care. It'd be lovely to enjoy it, but we have a job to do at the end of the day. Now, I have a problem with that quote because it feels like they're, they're being told that you have to make this work, otherwise people are going to die. Right. And are we trying to force a technology that may or may... It, it, on the face of it, it could be brilliant, as we talked about. We talked about two, two hours last week. We think... It, we're all fan of jet suits. But when we're forcing a, a solution like this, this is when accidents happen. Um, this is when seri- we could have some serious consequences. So that for me is 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 not only just waving a red flag. I've got two red red flags in each uh, arm and two red flares going off. Right. right. That, um, that, that, that concerns me. I don't need, what about you, Nick? What, what, what are your sort of takeaways? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. This, this to me, feels more like, oh, we have a technology, let's use it. In fact, I'm going to pull up a quote here from the Great North Air Ambulance uh, director who has uh, completed this training himself. We're still awestruck by it. Everyone looks at the wow factor and the fact that we are the world's first jet suit paramedics. But for us, it's about delivering patient care. When I started as a paramedic, I never thought I'd be working with a helicopter, never mind this. So, I mean, if you think about that, to me, it sounds like they are more impressed by the technology and the pairing of it with paramedics than they are concerned. I'm not saying the the goal, obviously, is to save people's lives. I'm not saying that it's ill-intentioned. I'm saying that I think maybe... Um, the way that we're talking about it needs to shift ever so slightly into, uh, yes, it will save lives, but we also have to consider at what cost and really kind of the, the last bit for me, um, is just that this is going to be, if, if this ultimately comes out of trial and this is becomes the norm, at least in this district, you know, others will follow suit. And so, I feel like this is the opportunity to get best practices, processes, procedures in place before you start doing it at scale, because there's going to be a lot of lessons learned and a lot of human factors issues and safety issues, especially if we don't learn those lessons early on. I think what you're saying there is that there needs to maybe be some human factors involvement um, at this early stage of making sure you're running trials and, and highlighting those issues through maybe a good you know, human factors assessment, a bit of human factors integration, maybe. Is, is, is that what you're hinting at? Yeah, and, and you do consulting, right? I, I Well, I'm sure we both could do a really good job on this, right? <laughs> yeah, we just gave them a bunch of ideas. Well, thank you, to, <laughs> thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at the BBC for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. 
You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you. Huge thank you, as always, uh, to our patrons. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you so much for your continued support. Okay, I know most of you will skip over this part. I keep mentioning this because now we have advanced analytics. I can tell when you're skipping. So I'm going to say don't skip here because this is really important. This is really cool. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about our lab and what we do, because we get a lot of questions about this, actually, uh, from folks who are interested in learning more about the lab or just curious what we're doing. You know, one thing that I don't think is immediately obvious is that we're not always putting stuff out into the world. And so people are wondering, what y'all doing over there in that lab? Um, we have a lot of different things that we're tracking and um, trying to accomplish over here at the lab that you don't see. And one thing that I want to mention is that kind of our mission, if you will, is to kind of provide solutions to communicating human factors principles in an easily digestible way. And the podcast is one of those, and it's certainly born out of that. Uh, but, you know, it is one of those passion projects for me because traditionally, and I'm not pointing any fingers here, human factors has been communicated by old, crusty white dudes. And you know what? I have a problem with that because... Okay, I'm not talking about you. I said I'm not pointing fingers, fingers. But look, here's the thing. It's like there's sort of this rift almost between academia and industry. And I want to bridge that rift. I want academia to see industry as a serious thing. I want industry to respect what academia has done to pave the way for some of this research. And so I don't think they always see eye to eye. Trying to bridge that gap, build a community of like-minded individuals who share a passion of human factors and to do that, we're really experimenting with different formats behind the scenes here. We have podcasts, we have blog articles, we have other types of content that we're putting out there into the world to communicate these things effectively. And, you know, one of our goals is to really reach people where they are. If you've ever seen a YouTube video pop up that's adjacent to the thing that you're looking on, you know, and it says human factors cast, how do how giving paramedic jetpacks can stop people from dying. That's what we want to do. We want to pop up in those recommendations as a way to say, look, you enjoy this stuff. What's human factors? Because a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, it is truly a confluence of many different things. We want to get behind it. And so, you know, there are a lot of perks for being in the lab. Obviously, it'll give you experience working on stuff, build up a portfolio of demonstrable uh, results for things like university applications, future work in industry, that type of thing. You also get to work with some of the industry standard tools that we're using behind the scenes here. We have a lot of really experienced folks in the lab uh, that can mentor you and help you connect with networks. So that's another benefit there. And um, you know what? We have a roadmap for benefits. So just if you're thinking about it at all, 
maybe consider reaching out to us. We'd love to have you. We're always looking for passionate people who want to communicate human factors. Anyway, that's my spiel. Uh, I think it's time that we get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from. Uh, this is where we search all over the community to find you topics that the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, no matter where you're at, uh, please, please give us a like wherever you're watching. Help other people find this content. So we have three questions today. They're all from Reddit. They're all from the user experience subreddit, which has been on a roll lately with some of these really good questions. This first one here is by Herico Rico. I hope I said that right. Uh, they say, how, how do I kindly push back on a suggestion made by a developer? I'm new to the organization, so I'm still building relationships. The default design can't be done due to technical and time constraints, so the development team suggested an alternative, which is functional but isn't great from an experience design perspective. How do I push back while still keeping the working relationship positive, if that makes sense? Barry, I'm I'm sure you've never encountered this in your life. No, I, I, in fact, I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, if only. Um... I mean, I think this is business as usual for any human factors UX practitioner, really, isn't it? The the dev will always, there is always going to be a, and I think it's actually quite a healthy thing, a positive tension between everything that, that the design that we want to ha want to achieve in the design, we want everything that we possibly can to um, work for the user, and, and that's why we exist. The dev wants to get the um, the code written in the in the best possible way, in the most efficient way, and to make it work from from their perspective, and and the best comes out of that um, that healthy tension between the two. So whenever you meet a new dev, it's always difficult um, because for I would say a good chunk of organisations, the devs still are given probably more respect than as HR practitioners or UX practitioners. And so they they tend to carry a bit more weight behind behind their opinions. Um, not everywhere. And some, I dare say, uh, some places are different, but certainly in my experience is that that is the case. But all you can do is, is do what we do, which is put forward the argument, um, put forward your proposal and why. Um, you don't have to do it in an antagonistic way. You don't need baseball bats or anything. It is literally just a, you know, put forward your reasoning. Um, if you've done your, um, done the research or the research exists, um, you, you should have the evidence behind you just to, to say why you're proposing what you're, uh, why you, why you're proposing what you're proposing or why their, their, uh, their proposal isn't going to work. Normally, if you're just going to say oh, that's rubbish, it's not going to work that generally won't float very well. You need to come up with a counter-proposal. Um, so just, just saying that's not going to work, I find doesn't get very far. That doesn't work, but if you tweaked it and did this, um, tends to get a better reception. So I, I, th and I think you can do all that in a positive way. You don't have to be nasty about it. I don't think you, you have to uh, uh, do any of that. If, if you come forward in, basically be proactive about what you're delivering, but don't be too subservient either. You're equally as important in that relationship as what they are. So um, just because you're new to the organization doesn't mean that you um, that you shouldn't put put your uh, put your opinion forward. What do you think, Nick? How do you deal with this one? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think there's a couple of really important considerations here. So one, they say it's not able to be done because of technical and time constraints. And one piece of advice that I would offer in this situation is pick your battles. Is this going to be something that is 
going to have a negative impact on the user? If not, is it really that important? And I know that is kind of counterintuitive to what we as human factors practitioners are wanting to do. Um, but I think it's important to consider because especially if you don't have the clout in the UX, uh, in UX in the company, that is something to consider. Is it going to be mission critical that they get this right or can it slide? You say it's functional. It isn't great from a user experience design perspective, but it's functional. Is is there another battle that you want to pick that's a better, you know, thing to pick? So I'm going to argue that you might not even want to push back in this case. Is it really important? I mean, try. Say, hey, look, I really think it should be like this. If, the, you know, like, is there any way we can make it work? Obviously push back. But don't be so pushy that, like, I don't know, it does develop that that friction between you and somebody that you'll potentially work with for a while. That's my two cents. All right, let's get into this next one here. Um, this one's advice for conducting asynchronous activities by Jen Piggy on the user experience subreddit. At my company, our project design team wants to conduct a journey mapping workshop and include people outside of our team as well. So this is like clients, stakeholders, etc. But because we're in different countries, time zones are hard to deal with. Any advice on asynchronous workshops or asynchronous workshopping that still gets everyone on the same page. Barry, do you have any experience with this? Yes. Um, not so much because of time zones, but because of uh, different organizations and, and basically access to access to uh, a user community that um, isn't always around. Um, fundamentally, it's about good organization and, and having software that is common across everybody and you can access. So for us, when I've done this before, I, I've done it in two levels, which actually um, works with with something that was going off around Twitter today, around, around the around the use of PowerPoint and and slides. So if you put a if you basically put the the journey map through a set of um, slides, you, Google, PowerPoint, Microsoft, whatever, choose your poison, um, but then make that available on a network with um, a header slide that exactly de uh, depict what it is you want your um the the other stakeholders to do on that journey and the time period that they've got to do it so basically a good instruction slide um give everybody a way of annotating themselves so if you want to track that sort of thing i've, I've done it both ways where one when one project i did and one project i actually wanted anonymous but get people to write it in, in you know whatever they're adding in different colors so you can track track the evolution and over a say a seventy-two hour period or whatever whatever time zone uh, time period you're using, um, give them that time period to do it. Then at the end um, of the time period, so say it's twenty-four hours. Um, at the end of the twenty-four hours, you then go back and review it and come up with a consolidated set um, of comments to allow you then to go go through another cycle. It's it's slow um, or slower. You don't get the the interaction between people like you would in a in a face to face workshop. There are things you can do around that, around, you know, it, I've seen suggestions about recording voice notes, about recording bits of video to maybe do some of your, um, to, to explore some of your rationale and things like that. They they don't tend to work out in, in my experience. Other people might find them uh, better. Um, the best thing I found is actually just leaving um, comments in the PowerPoint slide. So when you do it, when you normally do a review, use that, use the review comments to 
add notes in for your justifications if you if you feel that's that that fits um i just find that most people don't watch bits of video and, and listen to it uh, but that might just be the domain that i work in yeah. so uh, that that's kind of it from in, in terms of it, it's it's a longer more drawn out process you have to be on top of your admin to make it work um because everybody has to have a fair crack at the whip everybody has to know what they're doing without you being able to be there in person briefing them about it so if you get your admin right it can work and and yes uh, make it so but just get your admin up, up to scratch nick what what about you do have you got experience in doing this no i'm curious this was this was one of those ones that i picked out of genuine curiosity there's um you know i i have a need to do asynchronous work uh, and, you know, there's there's the traditional sort of uh, asynchronous user tools for things like usability studies, all that stuff. Like I can name a couple names, but I think the interesting thing to me is, yes, you're right. Th this requires a lot of setup. And I just do want to stress that the setup is probably the most important part here, because doing the thing that you just said, setting up in in you know, very clear instructions. How do you make sure people read those instructions is another question. But if you have the you know idea there, are, at least you could attend um, like a, 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 the start of each of these things, you could get people going. I don't know. There's, there's got to be ways out there. If you know, let us know. All right. This last one here. Is it a red flag to anyone else if a company says they tend to have one week turnarounds for research? This is by Poor Poof on the user experience subreddit. Hiya, I'm a senior UX researcher and I sat down for a panel interview for a position where I would essentially be building up the research department from the ground up with a lot of focus on discovery, exploratory research. A lead researcher from another group owned by the company asked what I would do if I had a week to conduct research and I answered honestly with, uh, good research takes time. They didn't like that answer at all. I'm already employed, so I'm not worried if I get the job or not, but I just want to check in to see I'm not crazy for suggesting more time for research. Barry, is one week enough time? No. There we go. Um, again, okay, well, we, we need it. It depends button. Um, really if you, yeah, if, if we've got things lined up, so you have a user pool, you've got, you know, things are planned out or things are, are easy to access and, and put in front of a user community. You don't have to do all of the... Because the stuff that takes time is recruiting your, your user pool, is, is generating the prototypes that are in in a fit state to engage with. Or if you're, you know, you're doing your more basic research, that because you just say it's it's more generative research, you know, to be able to go and do that sort of research, there's a there is organisation that it and you to deliver that in five days is incredibly difficult. Um, so I think fair play. Um, go back and yes, ask for the. Um, um, Ask for them, ask for them questions, and and see what you get. If they're not willing to play, then really, how comfortable do you feel about that job? Is that some people would see that, and I've, I've worked with people, some people who see that as a challenge, um, and let's say, yeah, I like the fast pace of that, um, and maybe yeah. you could develop processes, but yeah, I think that's a bit tight. Two weeks, I think, would be, I'd, I'd be, I'd be playing with, but I think a week is, yeah, it, it also depends on the scope. Right. The default time of research, I say, is two months. And that is by design. If, if you are looking for a scope on a big project, I say two months because that gives me time to talk to you, to organize meetings, uh, to come up with some of these uh, requirements for research and then actually talk to the people that need to participate in the research, organize all those times. It, it really depends on scope. Are you doing user interviews? Or are you doing a survey? It's very different. Do you have a user base or not? 
Um, and so, you know, I think a week is way too quick. That's my two cents. I don't really feel like adding more to this. It just, it feels way too quick. What are you going to do? Monday, you set up the study. Tuesday, you like send it out. Wednesday, you get some back. Thursday, you analyze. And Friday, you present. That is way too, like, it just seems way too accelerated to me. There is an interesting bit in there that you've actually just, the way you just done that out uh, made me think. Google actually, have, um, their Google, the Google Agile approach, they have a five-day sprint process that they detail on a day-by-day basis what you should do. It's not directly uh, generative research, but it is maybe something that could be applied in this situation. I don't right. know. I'd have to go look at the book again. But but I mean, you could you could even take that five-week ag- or five-day Agile thing and plan it out like one week planning, second week recruiting, third week executing, fourth week analysis, fifth week. Like that is to me what a more standard cycle is. Agreed. Maybe I'm on school. I don't know. Let's hear from you all. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm tired to talk about this. Let's get into one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. It's just where we talk about whatever. Barry, what is going on with you? So this week, I, I'm just going to highlight the fact I, we mentioned a while ago, I was going to get a new electric car. I was all very excited and all that sort of stuff. And it was coming like a couple of weeks ago. Well, a couple of weeks have gone by. I still haven't got it. Turns out I'm not going to get that car after all. Um, because when they promised me that I was going to get such and such a car, which I was very excited about, they've now run out of them. And I'm not. If I kept with that, I wouldn't get it till January. Mm. Uh, so we've we've done uh, done a bit of a bait and switch, and I'm hopefully going to get a car in I think about six weeks time, uh, which I'm going to go. I'm getting the new Ford Mustang, so oh. uh, I'm very excited. So the the most Mustang Mackey. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. But I'm now not holding my breath because it, I will. I kind of get feel I might get disappointed later on. So I thought I'd just have a little moan about that around the fact I'm not getting the car I wanted. But I am going to. I'm hopefully going to get a Mustang, which is actually quite exciting. Yeah. Well, hopefully you have a couple backups just in case the Mustang doesn't work out. Um, yeah, we'll see. I might just <laughs> go back to the first one and wait till January for it. Cause, um, yeah, at that point, right? What about? Uh, for me, uh, we're getting organized over here at the lab. I mentioned it during the break, uh, or d- coming back from the break. There was um, sort of a lack of effectiveness uh, with the pills this week, and um, you know, it, it led to some hyperfixation on my part, and through that, uh, resulted some productivity and some late nights. But it, it worked out in my benefit. So it's weird because normally um, hyperfixation occurs when I am sitting at my desk and like carving up uh, old water bottles with my Exacto knife that I have here. Uh, like that is that is what it usually results in. But this time it was kind of more dedicated towards actually being productive, and that was nice. Anyway, journey's non-linear. <laughs> that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, since we talk so much about the mental health of first responders today, you can, I'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 236. Where we talk about how we can better define mental health. Why don't you go ahead and give us a comment wherever you're listening on what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join us on our discord community. We're always chatting in there. Visit our official website, sign up to, for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest human factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show. There's a couple things you can do. One, Leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. And I think right now, if you go to Podchaser uh, and leave us a review there, they'll donate 25 cents for every review left to the efforts in Ukraine. So go do that. You can always tell your friends about us. Uh, And that is also free for you to do. Just let them know that you listen to the show and that it's a good thing. Uh, Or three, if you have money and want to give us money to support the lab, uh, you can always support us on Patreon. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. 
where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about how they can be saved via Jetpack? You can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K or any other socials. Also, you can um, hit up some of my interviews on 1202 uh, The Human Practice Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. And there we go. That's the show. We are here now in the pre-show, post-show, pre-show, pre-post-show. Oh, I guess we're the pre-show of the, of the post-show, so that kind of uh, works. Yeah, that little intro was the pre-show of the post-show. Now we're in the post-show. Yes. Um, awesome. Wow, what a fantastic episode that was. That was fun. Um, um, it just seemed to tick a whole lot of boxes, didn't it? Yeah, you know, you know, there. I'll be honest with you. There are some episodes that go by, and I'm just like, "Ee, okay, we put in our due diligence, but I don't know how that translated." This one, I feel really good about. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, it does help when you've a got two weeks to prepare for it, and b you yeah. just spent talking about it before you actually do the episode. Um, but that probably helped. Um, but no, I, th- I thought that was really tight, especially as we could because we'd gone around the boy of the fantasy stuff. That, you know, the more fantasy stuff that we wanted around the jetpack yeah. stuff this meant we could actually really keep this quite tight yes exactly of, yeah let's talk about this because actually we've, we've done some of it and actually nailed some of the, the specific issues um because i hadn't really thought about the because we didn't talk about it then but that the whole navigation piece just yeah. started going around my head of, of around of you know if, do you have something on your wrist do you have something that you know almost like a wayfinding arrow in front of you because i've done some work on is it commercial jets where you know what's now quite a common corridor in the sky thing right. where you just fly through the um the the, the 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 squares that are projected in front of you yeah um they come at you like you, this yeah um do you have that and you basically you know put yourself through that but that all of this everything seemed to come back to you're gonna need a really good um hel- helmet mounted um or some sort of you know um head up display type um, yeah, but um, no, it's good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. Hey, Barry, can I ask you a favor? Do you have enough things to talk about for three minutes? Because I foolishly have two water bottles here in front of me. Um, once again, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> go for it. Okay, I will be right back. Yeah, so he's obviously disappearing um, because that's bad planning. Um, but I'd be really interested if anybody is still uh, watching and listening. Um, for you to drop us a message on where you're at and what you're doing um, and what you thought about your idea of jetpacks because I don't know, it's your, it was one of these things that when you talk about it um, and I could feel myself doing it that you, I find this really exciting I think the idea of um, you know personally man, manned flight um, is, is, is a terribly exciting thing to do but then there is that whole piece around me that just worries. Um, I guess it's that it, it is that human practice practitioner in me that can immediately start assessing things and and reviewing it to sort of say these are the issues, um, and and these are the bits that we that we need to think about. I automatically get into my safety head, and I just can't get my head around. If you've got, um, I mean, I guess to be fair, I was seeing them through the uh, through the Iron Man films as well. Um, that, you know, how can he be walking around with all his gear on and just have all this sort of stuff um, going on um, and not burn themselves? I mean, can you imagine going to the loo with jetpacks on your on your hands? Just simple, practical things like that. Um, 
yeah, hi to Linda. And and you saw a guy fly with a jetpack nuking candlestick park in San Francisco. That's got to be quite cool. Uh, just to be able to see something, you know, live and, and that sort of thing happening. We were, so last, last year's ergonomics conference here in the UK, we actually had the, um, the guys from um, uh, the what you, uh, gravity industries talk to us about the uh, about what they were doing, and I really wanted to. Get, this is the, it was my one uh, disappointment about doing the virtual uh, conference then because that was one of them talks you really want to grab the, the guy who's talking, go to the bar afterwards, and sit down and say, right, what were all these issues that we uh, that we took that, that you did? How do you deal with? simple things like getting the thing on and off how do you how do you deal with the because no, you're gonna have jet wash um and all that sort of thing so how do you make sure that people around you are safe um i just find it all really all really fascinating so when you saw this guy flying with the, with the jetpack were you behind some sort of safety barrier or was he i presume it was some something official and just some random guy just didn't come and just get his jetpack out because that would be weird um how, how did it work for you as an as an experience? Oh, you're back now. So you shouldn't drink all that water because... Well, you know, I'm good to last through the post-show. Oh, good. I, That's all right then. I can do 30 minutes. It's just an hour and a half. It's a little long. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's, uh... Oh, you had a baseball game. Um, sorry, I'm just having a chat with you, man. Um, okay. The... I can imagine that being really, really cool. Yeah, see, I guess if you're in San Francisco, you know what Candlestick Park is. I'm being an, an ignorant Brit and not realizing that's a baseball um, baseball bat. So uh, that's I, I feel stupid now. Um, I don't actually. I, I get to go with being ignorant. Whoa! That, I mean, that that's got to be quite a buzz. Hasn't it? I mean, the the guys at Gravity Industries, some of the stu- interesting videos that they've done has been around. Um, you can see some of the work they've done with the with the military about going from like a ship to a, a landing craft um, and all that sort of stuff through you, and just the elegance that they fly um, they can make it look really 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 good and really it's it's a it's a whole matter of a professional isn't it when it's you make something look look simple and you make it look easy like anybody can go and do it um, but it clearly is quite a quite a quite a skill I don't know I, I'm curious Barry do you think you could do it do nope. you think you could do it you don't think you could do it in my head, or in my heart, really, I'd be awesome. I mean, well, saying that, I've, I've, I'm now just looking at a photo of all the gear you have to get. I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be the most well, best-looking guy wearing this sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't look, you know, it does look nothing like Iron Man. Um, maybe I'd be slightly more like the Hulk. Um, I don't know. I'd like to. The the amount of sports I've had to go at, which which are which requires you to have that sort of dynamic feel. So I've, you know, I, I had to go snowboarding a few years ago, and I kind of got there. You know, I could, I could sort of make it work, and that, that's a real, you know, the, it, it's a, something you have to rely on, feel and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it, in a sort of related way, I used to do a lot of, um, lot of rifle shooting, for example. Which again, you can't. It's one of these things you can't truly teach. You kind of have to do. Um, there's a there's a fair bit of gut instinct and feel around it. Um, so there's them sort of things, which I think this is obviously similar to because I think there's only so much teaching you could do around it. The rest of it would have to be around having the feel of of it of it right. And 
I don't know whether I don't know whether I'd be able to be able to. Do I'd like to think I would. What about you, Nick? Would you be able to uh, to do it? I would like to think so too. Um, I <laughs> I don't know. I I kind of feel like, and this might be weird to say, but I feel like it might be close to riding a motorcycle in some ways, because you are yeah. very in tune with what is going on physically around you. It's kind of this life affirming um activity to to operate a motorcycle and and so i think understanding what your body is doing and understanding what minor adjustments even do mm, um yeah uh, you know like as you're riding your motorcycle you lean a little bit this way and you turn yeah. um and I, I feel like you have that same natural inclination for moving your body uh once you once you understand the relationship between the depth back of your arm and the ground i think you get it like and and i think as somebody who's done that with another motor vehicle uh with, a, with another mode of transport um in the past i think i could do it cool it's somebody suggested that the modern one is is not dissimilar to skydiving in the fact that you have to, you, know, you use your hands and that to deflect air, um, but obviously you're just not falling all the time. You do get a bit of, bit of up. Um, Linda just sent us the, the photo through of of the one she saw uh, uh, in San Francisco, and that looks that looks quite scary actually. Um, so that's more of the um, it's, it's got the jetpacks on literally on on the dude's back, and then using the whole thing to steer. So it, do, it doesn't have anything on the arms or anything like that. Hmm. Um, but it still looks cool, though. Oh, that one. Um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, there was a Star Wars promo where uh, somebody in a Boba Fett um, suit wore something similar and, and, and flew down Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, see, you guys do all the, all the coolest things. All the fun things, yeah. Well, so uh, one thing I wanted to mention, too, in the in the um, post show here, uh, the, the caption for tonight under the Human Factors News was, I'm para, parentheses, medic. Uh, comma my backpack's got jets and that is a reference to a um a song made in the either 90s or early 2000s that was uh about boba fett and okay the original lyrics are i'm boba buffett my backpacks got jets so that is the reference to tonight's caption uh i thought it was completely too lost on me no i know i know it's probably lost <laughs> on a lot of people but it was important to me to include it um, and for those of you who did get it, thank you. I appreciate you. And uh, for those who didn't, that's okay. I get it. Not everyone will know that very niche song from <laughs> about I... a very niche Star Wars character. Well, not niche. I mean, he's got his whole television show now. Anyway, um, yeah, yes. there's yeah. I've, I've got I've got a long way to go in my um, in in my Star Wars education. So. We got to get you started. Like, there's um. So I'm I'm actually uh, th this is a good time to say well not really a good time to say uh, <laughs> since it's not the show proper but I will be out two weeks next month um, for a Star Wars convention in in which uh, I will be in Star Wars Bliss for four days. Are you getting dressed up and, and all that sort of shizzle? I'm not. However, we're dressing up my son. Well, I just don't think you're entering into the spirit of it properly. I think you should try harder. Look, we, 
we want to, <laughs> but like, you know, after you consider all the stuff that we'd have to take onto an airplane and then like, you know, I'm just, all here, that Nick. Stuff. just here, Nick. But look, like honestly, for me, it's it, that's fun. But then the the real fun comes from going to panels and seeing you know people that you um, admire who are good ambassadors of the franchise, and just being with a crowd of people who has this communal appreciation for a fandom that you're a part of. It's a it's a um, I don't say this lightly. It's a spiritual experience in a lot of ways. Um, I like I remember very uh, uh very clearly last time I went to this convention was in 2015 and the um I, I went to a panel and it had uh it was it was the Star Wars episode 7 panel and it had everyone on there everyone except for Harrison Ford it had uh it had Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher um it had Anthony Daniels. It had, uh, you know, um, John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, Oscar Isaac, like literally everyone on one stage. J.J. Abrams is up there. Kathleen Kennedy, everyone on one stage. And then they talk, you know, uh, for, for an hour about what we can expect from the movie. At the very end, they show the trailer for uh, The Force Awakens, the, the okay. one with Chewie. We're home. And I, I still remember, like, everybody in that theater lost their minds, myself included. Like, there may have been tears shed. It was it was a spiritual experience. And that happened several times that weekend. Maybe not to that same degree, but, like, you know, that was when they announced the new Battlefront game. And that's when they announced, um, you know, so, uh, uh, some new series. And that's when they uh, showed a lot of cool things. It was a very cool uh, time to be there. And I'm hoping that this time will be uh this the same and i will get to enjoy um everything through the eyes of my son who have not who's not been there um and is starting to like star wars like we're being very careful about how we introduce him to star wars it's a it's a strategy um <laughs> so like what we've been doing is uh kind of just we're not pushing it at all um if if it's on it's on if there's something that piques his interest, we will put it on. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't... He's seen... Um, he said Star Wars the other day. He said the word Star Wars. And I put on episode four. Just put it on. And he watched yeah, a good yeah. half hour of it. With, you awesome. know, for, for for a toddler, two and a half year old toddler with um, and that attention span. Uh, and episode four, which is comparatively yeah. slow to some of the other more modern Star Wars... I was very surprised and very um, I, I was uh, I was hopeful that then there's like, you know, we're on YouTube and there's like these little shorts that the Star Wars kids channel puts out about like the creatures of Star Wars or the droids or whatever. So, you know, he points at it and says, Tauntaun, he knows what a Tauntaun is. Our cat's name is Tauntaun. Um, and so, you know, we've shown him Tauntaun and Tauntaun. <laughs> and, uh, so he's, he knows what that is. He sees the creature on the TV. He says Tauntaun. We put it on. Right. So we're, we're very deliberate, very careful with how we show him Star Wars. He knows what lightsabers are. He sees them over here on my, yep. uh, over my shoulder. You know, he knows, he knows, but we don't push it. We don't push it. We never push it. Um, and, and this, this, uh, convention will be the first time in which we really, immerse him in something where maybe it's going to be 
Uh, he doesn't want to do that. He might, he might want to watch Sesame Street while we're there. You know, something else like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think him being there, seeing everybody else in costume is going to get him excited because it's different. It's new. It's a new experience. He's going to be like, I don't know. It's kind of cool. It is. He's going to be in costume. Yeah, and, and he'll be able to experience it in his own way. I mean, it was great interesting. We took, because um, my son is, is now 12 years old. Um, and he's sort of, he's now at that sort of teenager age where um, everything is a bit awkward and you know he doesn't want to do anything because in fact I'm like he's 13 because he's, he's literally just become a teenager um, I should know that because I'm, I'm his father um, mm -hmm. and the you know we, we went along to um, a gaming and um, comic convention um, last weekend and just in the in in, um, in Swansea, and and it was quite interesting. Lots of people were dressed up. Now the reason we went is because Leo was really into doing his own um, costumes and all that sort of stuff. So he's you know he likes we we sort of three D printed um, Iron Man masks, and he'll go and do all the uh, prep and the paint and do all this sort of stuff, and he's made his own costumes out of foam and all this sort of jazz. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, you, you want to go along? You can take one of your costumes because people will be dressed up and all that sort of stuff. But he's kind of hit that age of, oh, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and given that he's now taller than me, then um, I don't argue with him as much. Um, yeah. Because, because he, he, as, as he looks, it's hard to tell somebody off when they're looking down at you. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's, yeah, so more of that, that little bit of stories, make, you know, make the most of them uh, when, they're, when they're small and you can take them to all that sort of stuff. And they'll absolutely enjoy it. Um, no matter what, and then you know we've done it with our kids and sort of take them to a, a variety of things, um, and then see what they're like. The weirdest thing for us, though, I think, in this whole thing, because you'd expect so both me and Amanda, my wife, we're both engineers. You know, both got an engineering background, um, and obviously I've come into human factors. She's now coming to human factors as well. That's great. Our two girls, generally, pretty much, well, in fact, all three of them are very artistic. Um, so Ellie's into fine art. Um, Paul is into um, in, into drama and things like that. And, and then Leo's into his costume making. You're just like, how did that happen? Where did that come from? You'd think that they would be like um, more influenced down the engineering route. But um, but we've been very careful, a bit like what you're saying, not to try and influence what we want want them to do, but more about giving them the opportunity to, for them to to be whatever it is they wish to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of the same way. My parents uh, immersed me in radio broadcast, and I it wasn't ever pushed. It was a part of life um, that I absorbed. And obviously, some of the things I picked up obviously play into what we're doing even today. Uh, but psychology is such a, you know, <laughs> left turn from from all of that. Uh and and I I still don't know how that happened. Like it it kind of just um, it's like way out in left field. We're <laughs> with the baseball analogies tonight. Uh, and um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it it is odd how that happens. Where um, you know I, I wonder what my son will be into and what he will absorb from the things that I tell him, and how different that will end up being from the things that I enjoy or or you know how similar like what what will we connect over it's i don't know the parenthood's wild <laughs> yeah and i guess it's i it's more now that i i guess it's going to be interesting to see you know like grandchildren and things like that because because of exactly that because we've not that i recommend experimenting on children uh, for scientific purposes but 
we've sort of done that whole you know when ellie was first growing up we were very keen on we it wasn't so much of the you know we avoid the whole green um pink and blue stuff but it was equal proportions so yes she had um you know ballerina dresses and dolls and all that sort of stuff but equally she had toolkits and diggers and you know bob the builder outfits and, and all that sort of stuff and we were very keen that everything was um um as equal as it could be without going over, going over the top and it's interesting to see how they've um all three of them have, have evolved in their own thinking about whether they've become they've all gone through phases of either being um a bit more girly girl a bit more boy a bit more and then and i guess flex between the two quite happily until they're they're on their sort of chosen path which is um but equally i think the girls have turned out being you know i guess almost typical girls um which is which i find quite interesting given that we've tried not to um gender bias them in that way so, right uh, yeah we're, we're doing something similar right like i mean he's into hot wheels right now um but you know we we, we have pink barbie cars and he, rainbows and just you know it, it's there's nothing that um if he sees something he wants something the packaging doesn't sort of influence us he wants it he gets it uh within reason um you know, it, can't, it can't cost us an arm and a leg that's kind of the rule. <laughs> uh yeah, exactly um but you know it, it doesn't yeah we we're doing the exact same and i think that's it's the right way to raise children um, mm. yeah but it's um but you shouldn't experiment on children um but then well, not without like, irb approval well this is true though i I'm apparently the responsible parent, and I'm qualified to do this stuff. So surely, yeah, that, yeah I'm, uh, that's fine. We're, uh, we're trained psychologists. We we can we could do it. It's fine, right? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I I mean, like to be fair, um, parenting is an experiment, and uh, we you you treat it as such. You you approach uh, approach a situation where child is unhappy. Okay, well, by by sort of deduction, you try to understand what the conditions are that are making them unhappy, and you either try to remove the stimulus that is making the child unhappy or add a stimulus that will patch the happiness temporarily until you can remove the thing that is making the child unhappy. And then, ultimately, you do the same thing with learning. Okay, I am I am telling you to do this thing and you are not doing it because what am I doing? Is that ineffective? Okay, well let me try a different way of approaching the situation with you. And being a scientist and being a parent and trying to mix those two hats uh all the time doesn't work, but when when I like sit back and think critically about what I'm doing, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying different approaches to try to get to, to communicate um you want to get, get the best output i mean we we did that quite um we went slightly more extreme um <laughs> with that because I, I don't know whether I've, I've mentioned this before on here but the um we home educate our children um okay. and so we ellie did start at school and then for, for one term um for a number of reasons um which we didn't see coming particularly but we decided to we did that wasn't in in her best interest and um we could do 
we, we could do it and we you know in a lucky posi- lucky position that we, we could do that and we've never really looked back the so we've home educated all three kids um whereas ellie now is she's she's gone to college um and he's excelling in college about to go to university but all through a secondary education we, we did that at home holly's doing her exam soon um and she's you know going, uh one of her most uh, plans recently was she's going to become famous just right okay fair enough yep. um then she's gonna well, go her go dad's to on a couple podcasts so i mean it's basically there uh, yeah exactly right um the but then her plan was to get was to become famous and then move to new york now she's and it's like okay but then because she, she determined that she couldn't move to new york without becoming famous because she might have to do stuff when she's there and she'd rather get other people to do it for her and i was like well, can't can't float um can't pick holes in the logic um but then when he's like well what you can do to become famous that that's kind of well, we've got a bit of a problem there but you know um so it, it is it is interesting seeing how they how they develop and we've just really focused things around i mean i'm, I'm a great believer in just motivation if you're motivated mm-hmm. to do something then actually it almost doesn't matter what the thing is assume that it's legal um then um use that as a springboard for for everything else so i say i sort of think this actually it's, it's amanda who does most of the uh, most of the heavy lifting when it comes when it comes to the uh, the home education side but um, oh you do that too you you refer to uh the the choices that your wife makes as we <laughs> Well, there, there is. I mean, it's really interesting that the you know the the whole thing. I mean, obviously, it 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 was a big family decision to do it and to keep right, doing. Right. It. We, we do review it, um, but yes, I think the the cho- choice there was we just like she treats all of my money as our money. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, it, it 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 all goes into the communal melting pot. Um, yeah, I I I always get a. Um... I don't want to say I get yelled at. I, that's not the that's not the way my wife communicates. Um, she she will catch me on it. Let me put it that way. So like if I say yeah, we do that with our son, and she goes, we do that. <laughs> I mean, you you do that, and I'll have to go. Okay, my wife does that. So you um, get the look. Yeah, I well I get the look and the words. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll see. Amanda's got that much more home now. She doesn't have to say the words. She just looks. Mm-hmm. I, I know I don't know. Oh no, I, I get the look too, and I, I, but oh, see, light travels faster than sound, so you, so you get a yeah. preemptive warning there that you know what's coming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. she's got you well trained. Yep. I mean, you know, but I, I, I think she, she more than pulls her weight, and uh, she's absolutely right when I take credit for something that I didn't do. Oh, see, I've learned that I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be half the money I am today with it if I didn't take credit for the stuff I didn't do. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, same, same. <laughs> That's, I think, why it's it's such a um, so hard to break that cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do that in the lab. Uh, I mean, my lab members do. I take credit for it because I told them to do it. <laughs> oh dear. It's, oh. Uh... What do we have? We're, all, we're in a we're long almost... day. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, wow, that actually, that it's flown today. It um, has. It really has. This was a. This was a incredibly fast two hours. I can't even believe um, that we have been sitting here talking for two hours. So when do the when do the next stories go? So the next stories go up tomorrow. Or They'll go out tonight. Post? Yeah, tonight? I, they're part of that post checklist. Um, oh, that 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 thing that's like a million items long. Yeah. 
which I, I did for a variety of reasons. One, I wanted people to see there's transparency into what I am doing post-show. Um, and then two, it's also to keep me, I, I have it built into the tail end of this, but I also have it built into chunks of like, Hey, on this platform, do this on this platform, do this in rough order, but I wanted it to be more sequential. Um, yeah. and so it, it's, it's kind of built that way now, sequential order. So we'll see if it works tonight. I'm going to use it. Um, but just to give you all an insight into this, it's download full video for uh, download full video, which is HD for YouTube. Down, highlight show on Twitch. Uh, update thumbnail and description. Put the highlighted show into a collection also on Twitch. Um, and if there's any funny moments on the show, document any clips. Then you download the full show on Twitch for standard uh, definition conversion to IGTV format. Uh, then on Audacity, you produce the podcast. On Get Welder, you take that produced odd podcast and throw it up there for transcription. And then back in Audacity, you produce the full audio version of this podcast, which includes the pre-show, the post-show, for patrons. Then you go and upload this full audio version of the podcast for our patrons. After that, you upload it to the platform, uh, the regular show that we, uh, the platform that we use. Um, you add any details to it that you might need to, then you take the HD episode or the HD video source, uh, that you originally downloaded and throw that up on YouTube as a separate standalone thing. You add all the details, you add it to a playlist, you link to a related video, you schedule it for midnight, you add timestamps if you want. Then I go and produce the IGTV version. Then, um, you know, I schedule all the posts, the promo posts, posts for it to go live at, uh, well, the IGTV goes out at six, all the promo posts go out at nine. Each one of those is a separate check. Uh, and then after that, that's when I have the post the new poll. Um, and so all that stuff happens. And then I say, okay, hey, we're doing another show next week. Vote on it. Um, although our patrons will see that tomorrow morning. Um, Twitter will get it tonight just because of the way uh, scheduling works. Um, then I, once, once that's done, I go back into YouTube and trim the pre-show and post-show from the re-uploaded thing. I could do it offline, but it requires more processing power. So I just do it in YouTube anyway. Then on the website, there's some weird ingestion issues. So I fix all those. Then I remove some details from the website cause you don't need things like the episode link. You're already there. Um, and the signature info I remove because there's a feature on the website that allows you to change that um, across all episodes. Then, you know, I replace the thumbnail, I attach a YouTube link, I add any guests, and then I add the transcript that I threw in earlier into the website and everywhere else. So that's all the steps that I need to take after we get off of this in two minutes. Wow. Um, yeah. You know what, and I'm, what I'm doing after we, after we sleeping? Go two minutes. I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that doesn't even that doesn't even capture the pre-show, which is, uh, you know, check the poll results, um, generate a title, uh, generate the thumbnail for the live stream, um, generate the show notes, do the description for the live screen, live stream, set up the event, uh, then add that live stream to the YouTube playlist. Um, and then you generate all the artwork, that needs to go out so the podcast artwork has something different than the youtube artwork has something different than the igtv artwork so you do all that uh and then i do some patreon related stuff in between there too to kind of get that ready so this is when i like you know produce and push up the next 
week's episode of Human Factors Minute. That all happens. Um, you know, we have them written and recorded. I just produced them before the night before. So that way, or not night before, the couple of days before. So that way it's just part of my workflow. Um, wow. Works out better yeah. that way. Yeah. Anyway. It's, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's... How much interaction do you get on Twitch? Do we know? Do, you, do we get figures from Twitch? We do. Um, okay. let's ask me tomorrow at the lab meeting. Yeah, that, no, that's true. Yeah, I will do. Okay. The, um, I was debating about which ones to sort of, I've sort of keep mine fairly, fairly simple. And um, I generally pushed out YouTube. Uh, video just goes up to YouTube. Though I think I could do better at pushing it out singly to LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn's, so. e- LinkedIn's evolving. LinkedIn's get, getting better. Yeah. Because uh, it used to be really, I, I didn't like it at all. Whereas, yeah. Um, getting there, so I might push some separate feeds out that way rather. Than yeah, just- I, I, let's talk LinkedIn uh, metrics tomorrow. Yeah, I, I got some stuff to show you. All right, well, Ooh. if you've been hanging out, uh, thank you, appreciate it. Um, we are going to get gone. Uh, Barry's gonna go to sleep. I'm gonna start on this 50 checklist item checklist that I've made for myself. We'll be back next week to talk about something. Um, we have some stories that it could be about. Uh, there's some good ones in there, so look out for our Twitter poll. Uh, would really appreciate if you'd all uh, choose a good one. Choose choose a good one. Actually, you know what? You know what we used to do is we used to do kind of a preview of what could come next week. I want to do that very quickly, um, just while we're wrapping up here. So. <clears throat> Potential topics for next week. Uh, there's um, a new IEEE standard that will make autonomous vehicles safer. Uh, there's a study that finds top reviews, not average ratings, sway consumer decisions. Um, and then the last one here is Arctic simulation of moonlike habitat shows well-being sessions can improve mental health in extreme isolation. So once again, mental health. Um, the one so that I that last one, then that'd be great. <laughs> See, I was thinking the uh, the the ratings one, the consumer decision making would be fun to talk about. But we all have our picks. You go pick <laughs> yours. The Twitter poll will be up tonight. Appreciate, appreciate y'all hanging out with us. And we'll be back next week to talk about one of those topics or another one that may be coming in from last week. So we'll see. Catch y'all later. Goodbye, everybody.